I would invite you to turn to the book of Ruth. Ruth comes right after the book of Judges, right before 1 Samuel, tucked in there. Easy to skip by. We're going to be in Ruth for about six weeks, and then I believe on the 12th we'll begin in 1 Corinthians, and we'll spend a good uh, while in 1 Corinthians. There's a lot to unpack there, and that book intimidates me, so I'm putting it off for a few weeks and going to Ruth, which is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. As you turn there, I'll just uh, make a quick plug. Dennis announced the three-year evaluation, the assessment that we do. It's something that we're constitutionally bound to do. It's in our protocols, uh, but it's, it's not just a... Um, perfunctory thing, I think. I don't want it to be. I, w- I would encourage you to take that seriously and really prayerfully discern what you might write in that assessment. Um, by nature, I'm not a person who likes to review and assess. I uh, worked in a seminary and in an academic institutions. You do a lot of time assessing and reviewing and filling out those kind of things, and I, I found that I really hate to look backwards. I much prefer looking forward into what's next. So uh, my natural inclination is against these types of things, but they can be really useful and helpful if there's something the Lord needs to say to us through each other, through the congregation. So I would invite you to really take that seriously. And it may be that this tool is a tool that God uses to teach and train us as a church or even as individuals, as leaders, as ministers. And, and as I told the first service, be sure to give the preacher good marks in that review. Which one? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> the one for about the next however many months. <laughs> I have not, I, I'll have to confess, I have not listened back through the, the Colossians series, but I've heard wonderful things, and I know you all have been blessed, and we'll, we'll have to shake the cobwebs off here as, as I try and get back on the horse here. But as we do that, let's start in Ruth. We're just going to read five verses. I gave myself a small chunk, uh, being kind to myself. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. In September of 1955, several evangelical missionaries began making regular flights over the rainforest of Ecuador. Why? Well, they were attempting to make friendly contact with the Huarani people. The Huarani were an isolated tribe in Ecuador, known for, to outsiders, for their violence, particularly against those who weren't native to the land. So the missionaries began making flights over the area, and they dropped gifts to try and make friendly contact. After a little while of doing this, the tribe began leaving gifts, and the gifts were reciprocated. So after a few months of exchanging pleasantries, in January of 1956, the five missionaries touched down and established a camp on the beach, a few kilometers away from the Huarani settlements. 
There was hope that they would soon make contact and get to know them and, and, and live among them and eventually to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that their Lord and Savior could save them. A few days after touching base, on January 8th, all five men, all five missionaries were attacked and killed by Huarani warriors. All five of the men were in their late 20s or early 30s. All five left behind wives. Four of them had children. And imagine being the wives left behind. After you prayerfully with your husband decided to, to take on this venture for the sake of the gospel, trusting God and his providence that he would lead the way, that he wants the salvation of these people and he's raised you up for this time then you, you send off your dear husband to go and things are looking good initially and there's hope and then within a matter of days it all comes crashing down violently and bitterly and then you are left at home wondering why did this happen and what's next and is there any hope going forward? What comes next when tragedy and death meet you. And that's really what the story of Ruth is all about. We could ask the question several ways. Is there hope for the hopeless? Where is God when hard things happen? And I'll ask it this way uh, to guide our time this morning. Does anything good remain for those who have nothing left? Does anything good remain for those who have nothing left, for those who have lost everything, for those uh, who've had life fall apart on them, as is what happens to Naomi. Does anything good remain for those who have nothing left? So when I answer this morning and ask more than anything, and we'll see, we'll ask, is there hope for a redeemer? We'll focus on this small family and insignificant people, and the book of Ruth is really a story of, of these small people and their redemption. But as you read it, we'll find out that the story of Naomi and Ruth and these small people is the story of God's people, that it has bigger consequences and bigger significance and it tells us who God is and what kind of redeemer he is. But, and that's where we'll get by the end of the Ruth, but first we've got to set the stage for the story. And we do that in the first five verses. The setting is bleak. Things fall apart here in the first five verses. And we see that, the hint of that, really right in the first verse. In the first verse, we see that they live, this little family lives, in desolate days. So that's why I've titled this first half of verse 1. They live in troubled times, in times of emptiness, in desolate days, in days of barrenness. The book of Ruth opens with this simple historical marker. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. So this gives us a, an historical time frame for the story. It is in the days of the judges. And we know when the days of the judges are. These are after the days of wandering in the wilderness, after Moses had led the people out of uh, Egypt and through the desert, and after the days of conquest in Joshua, right? After Joshua had led the people and fought off enemies, and now they are in the land. They're in the promised land in Canaan and Israel. God has settled them there, but there's still chaos, you could say, in the area. There's still 
fighting off enemies as they settle in the promised land. So what happens is God will raise up a judge every once in a while, and this judge will be a local leader who will fight off a specific threat at a specific time. Then there will be peace for a little bit, and then more trouble will come up, and another judge will be raised up. But it's very chaotic. There's no stability in this time. So this isn't just giving us an historical time frame. We know the time of the judges was between 1250 to 1050 B.C. or so. It gives us an historical time frame, but more than that, it tells us what kind of day it was, what the character was of the era. And it was a time of societal chaos and moral chaos. Like, that defines the judges themselves. Not only was the leadership unstable, but the people themselves were unstable. If you read through the judges and who they were, they're not the valiant heroes that we might want. They're not, they might be little S saviors, but they're not big S savior, right? So Gideon is a judge who saves them, but man, is he a, a weakling of faith. And Samson saves Israel but not the strongest person morally. He, he never met a vow he didn't break. So the, the judges themselves weren't always exemplary, and, and that was true of the time itself. In fact, the end of Judges describes what kind of time it was, and that should help us know what kind of day Ruth is living in. The last verse in Judges is, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there's no king. And we, as anti-authoritarian Americans who overthrew our king, we hear there's no king and we say, oh, that's good. Like no tyrant, no, no dictator. But when in this context you hear no king, you should think there's no leadership, no stability, no protection, no one to guide them or lead them. It was a time of chaos in leadership. It would be, well, the phrase that comes to mind is Jesus looking out over the crowds and having compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's what this time was like. And when there is no shepherd, when there is no king, when there is no external righteous authority to lead them, what happens? It leads to moral chaos. They all do just what is right in their own eyes. What is right to them, that's what they do. Without any external guiding authority, I'll just do whatever feels right within my own heart, and that will be what is most important. And what is true for me will be true for me, and what is true for you can be true for you, but that's what's going to guide us without that external leadership. And what happens is chaos and actually violence and instability, and it leads to destruction and societal ruin. Because what happens when we overthrow God and say we don't need a king, we don't need a leader, we don't need authority, we don't need anyone over us telling us what to do, but I'm going to be my own king, I'm going to be my own ruler, my own guy, well, we each become our individual gods, which sounds great, but that utopian ideal is ruined as soon as one little god meets another little god. And then who settles who's in charge? And my truth starts to conflict with your truth. And if there's no righteous authority to lead us out of that in a good way, it becomes friction and chaos and societal breakdown. And that was the time of the judges. And doesn't it sound like our own day? 
true for you, it's true for you, but what's true for me is true for me. And in that kind of environment, sooner or later, nobody knows what is right. We've lost bearing or compass. I'll I'll use this example. I do so hesitantly because I don't want to seem like somebody who just bashes the West Coast. Remember, I am from the West Coast. I am a West Coasterner, if you will. That's home for me. So so I say this, uh, but I do this with some sense of compassion and hopefully not in a self-righteous way. But just as an example, from what I understand, over in California, they've loosened some laws and it has not worked well. So you may have seen videos recently of people shoplifting a ton and stealing a ton, and that is because, from what I understand, I could be wrong, but from what I understand, they have loosened penalties against or for small, petty crimes, and they have loosened it to such an extent that you can steal up to $950 before that becomes an arrestable offense. So... And the, I think the heart and the compassion is there, trying to, you know, how do we, how do we keep people out of prison? How do we reform? There, there's, a, there's something of a good motivation in there. But what has happened, it seems, is people have caught on that you can steal 900 bucks of stuff and not without any recourse. So now what was happening is people are standing in line waiting to purchase their goods at CVS, and they're taking videos of people walking out with bags of stuff without any penalty. So what happens in that environment? Well, the person in line waiting to spend their hard-earned money on the products sooner or later begins to wonder, well, am I the sucker here? Like, why, why am I paying for this when clearly it's acceptable to just take it and go? And as soon as that happens, that person's own like, ethical barometer or system has been adjusted. And that happens all over, and society starts to break down as ethics go out the window. And then, of course, what happens practically? Well, the CVS or the Target or whatever, sooner or later, they start putting up more gates or putting things up a lock and key, and then once they realize they're not making a profit anymore because people are stealing their stuff, they leave town. Because that's the only wise thing to do if all your stuff is getting stolen, is you, you leave, you move. And now what happens? There's no stores in the area. In fact, there would be what you would call a famine. So what we don't think about often is that there is a close tie between ethics and morality and the good of the land in which we live. That the area, the land suffers when the people reject righteous authority in God and go their own way and do what is right in their own eyes. It becomes chaos and the land suffers. And that's exactly what happened in Israel this time. So it's the time when the judges ruled and there was famine in the land, and you should read those and know those are connected. There is judgment behind this. Several places in the law warn that if the people of God turn from the Lord and worship false gods, there will be penalties for breaking their covenant with Yahweh. So Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 18 says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. It seems to be that in the beginning of Ruth there is a famine, and that is an indication 
the kind of judgment of God, as Charles Dickens would label it, it was the worst of times. And I think in that, there's encouragement for us. Because as we think about what time Ruth lived in and the time of the judges, we might make the connection and say, well, that's a lot like our time. We don't experience famine, and I certainly didn't on sabbatical. Uh, I enjoyed my sabbatical time. But we do live in a time of moral chaos, and as we think about the time of judges, we might say, well, that sounds like our time. And maybe at times we look around the world around us, we look around our own families and see what's going on, and we think, it is really bleak. It is hard to be optimistic. It is hard to spend time on Twitter and just watch my Twitter feed and be optimistic. People call it doom scrolling for a reason. When you just scroll through the news and you just have doom upon doom fall over you. And you think, man, this is a really bleak time. Is there any hope for this? And then we look at this time, the story of Ruth, and there's the hope. Because what we find is in the worst of times, God is still active. And that's what the story is about. And I think that's what the encouragement is for us. That our time might be similar to theirs, but God is still on the throne. He's still doing stuff. And he even does stuff through insignificant people. And he will do incredible, wonderful things in the worst of times. And where we are now... As God's people, we've been before. There's nothing new under the sun. God's people have lived through bleak days before, and he's taken them through, and he will be their redeemer just as he was and always will be. Even in dark days, desolate days, through what I would call even the dark providences of God, which is what we see here in these five verses, Horrible things happening, yet God is still on the throne and still sovereign. Even in the lives of insignificant people, we meet them in the next couple of verses. These little people, this small family. And the small family makes what I would call a dubious decision. Lived in desolate days, and then on top of that, they make a dubious decision. As soon as we meet the characters, we find that they're on the move. And as I'll explain here, I think this move itself is a dubious decision. Look at verse 1 again. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So here we're introduced to the family. The husband's name is Elimelech, which means literally my God is king. And there may be a sense of irony in that. His wife's name is Naomi, which means lovely or pleasant one, a serene name. And they have two sons named Malon and Kilion. Scholars are a little bit unsure of the debate on what these names mean. The leading guesses are something along the lines of sick and pining or frail. You might ask, why such ominous names? Well, it was a time of famine. And they were born sick and frail and weak, it seems. And, and it may be even that with the high mortality rate they would have had with kids, that to name them these names is actually almost a sign of God has carried us through. And we have these sick little weak ones, but they're alive. So that might be the reason behind their names. We don't know. Whatever the case, we have our central family, and we find out where they're from. They're from the little town of Bethlehem. 
We know Bethlehem. It's in Judah, about six miles or so from Jerusalem. We, we know the name. Do you know what Bethlehem means, literally? It means house of bread. Bethlehem is known for producing wheat and barley and grapes and olives and almonds. It was known for producing food. And the house of bread, there was a famine. So we get a sense again of the, the irony at play here. And from what we can tell is, and from what we know, we think there's an area associated with Bethlehem known as Ephrathah because a clan from the lineage of Ephrath settled there. So they're Ephrathites of the clan of Ephrathah. Um, so sometimes a, particularly, a particular family settles an area and they start to name things around them, right? So... Uh, the Friesen clan might uh, settle in an area, and then there's a Friesen street, and the Friesen whatever, you know, and the, the, and the Friesen clan name permeates. And that's what happened here, is that the Ephrath uh, name permeated, and there's a lot of Ephrathites. So they would be known as the people of this clan, and they may have had some, um, they may have been known as Ephrathites to the people. The most important things are from the tribe of Judah, as we'll see later. But they leave their home, their clan in Bethlehem, and travel to Moab. Moab was a foreign nation outside of Israel, about 50 miles southeast across the Dead Sea. And they sojourned there. They traveled intending to live as resident aliens. They would kind of take up shop there for a while while the famine passed. They aren't the first people to wander because of famine in the Bible. Can you think of some other notable people, patriarchs even, who wandered because of famine? Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12 wandered, sojourned to Egypt because there was a famine. Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 26 wandered or sojourned into the land of the Philistines because there was a famine. Jacob and his sons went to Egypt where Joseph was. Genesis 42. Why? Because there was a famine in the land. And by God's providence, Egypt had some stored up stuff. So, Elimelech and his family kind of stand in the long line of patriarchs who fled their land because of famine. But what I want to argue with you is that Elimelech's decision has a different spiritual or moral um, dimension to it that is not there with the patriarchs. Why? Because consider the context of those patriarchs. They were people of the promise looking forward to the promised land. God gives his promise in Genesis 12 that he will settle his people in his land. Uh, it's a, a good land flowing with milk and honey, right? And God was going to settle them there. So that's what the patriarchs were looking forward to, finally one day settling into the land. And for 400 years they're in captivity in Egypt and they have to wander through the desert for another 40 and then they have to take time to conquest and Joshua settles them in there. And finally they're there. They're settled in the land that God had promised. And Elimelech comes after the fulfillment of the promise, after God had already settled them in, and then leaves. So he, he turns his back on the promise fulfilled and goes. We don't think of moving and journeying as having a moral dimension because that's not the age in which we live. I could go to New York, Chicago, Dallas, I could even go to Portland and find good Christians there and a worshiping community. I could find a church that loves the Lord, preaches the gospel, disciples people, loves others. You can find that almost anywhere across 
this nation and just about across the world now. Why? Because the gospel's gone out. God has been good and faithful. His church has grown. The kingdom has advanced, if you will. And Jesus rules on the throne over all nations as king because he has ascended to the right hand of God and all this world belongs to him. So we can go anywhere and worship him. That's the context we live in. That's not the context Elimelech lived in. Yes, God was on the throne and sat above the circle of the earth, so to speak. But in that day, the nations were handed over to other gods. You could call them demons, false rulers. And Moab was no different. Moab was, you could say, under the rule of a false god. Chemosh, actually, is the name of Moab's god. They worship Molech there as well, who's associated with child sacrifice. And when Elimelech moved his family there, they weren't going to find a community of worshiping Israelites to worship Yahweh with. They were leaving Yahweh to go to the land of Chemosh. And I think in that move demonstrated a lack of faith in God's providence to care for his people in his own land. And to go to Moab of all places, which was an enemy of Israel. In fact, there's an interesting verse in Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 4. Moabites weren't allowed to enter the assembly of Israel. And there's a very specific reason given. Listen to Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 4. No Ammonite or Moabite might enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why? Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethar of Mesopotamia, to curse you. So you hear why Moabites were enemies of Israel? Because when Israel was wandering through on the way to the promised land, they met the Moabites along the way, and the Moabites didn't receive the most hospitality. Rather, they rejected them, did not give them bread or water, and then hired a prophet to curse them, and that didn't work out very well. But the point is, the Moabites rejected them and did not give them bread. So Elimelech is literally going to a place with no bread from the house of bread, trying to save his life. And you might ask, well, what was he supposed to do? There was famine in the land. Is he just supposed to stay there? What was he supposed to do? Well, actually, God's word tells us what he was supposed to do. Deuteronomy 39 says that if they return to the Lord, then the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. There is a prescription for them. If you are in famine, repent and turn to the Lord. But Elimelech and his family, they weren't thinking biblically or theologically. They were thinking pragmatically. So I'm going to flee. I want to encourage us to see with eyes of faith, to think biblically and theologically think according to the promises of God and what he commands and then promises to us to think with those in mind instead of, I guess I would call with human eyes, thinking pragmatically only with what we can touch or feel. 
this will be crucially important for us. There are stories upon story of, I guess, throughout the Old Testament that show us what happens when we don't think with eyes of faith and reject God and think practically. This nation's really scary. Better partner up with the Assyrians or the Babylonians. That'll help us. All throughout the Old Testament, God calls his people to think with his promises and commands in mind. And that's important for us, I think, as God's people, to think and see with those eyes of faith. Why? Because it's going to get really uncomfortable to be Christian. It just is. I don't say that trying to threaten doom or anything like that. I'm just saying that the world around us is going to think you're insane if you're a Christian. You guys probably feel this more in your lines of work than I do as a pastor. In some sense, as a pastor, I'm insulated because I'm expected to speak Christian talk. I'm expected to speak in in Bible, and that's just commonplace for me. But you actually have to go out and live with non-Christians and bosses who might think you're insane for following the Lord. And it's going to be really difficult for you at times. And maybe you've already felt this. I don't know. But there will be times where it's difficult to hold to Christian conviction and do so not like a jerk, do it graciously and lovingly, but hold to it when the world is totally opposed to what you think and believe. And you are going to have to think through, do I trust God? Will I follow him even if practically this seems like it will ruin me? Will I trust that God will be good to me if I stay in the realm of his promises and what he's commanded? Elimelech, I believe, as I read this, didn't. That's why I call it a a dubious decision. But I think even then again we can be encouraged. Because even if this is a dumb decision that Elimelech makes, God still uses it. And what a wonderful encouragement for us when we've made mistakes, when we've lacked faith, when we've walked away from God, or we've done the thing we shouldn't. And we look and God still cares and still is willing to use it for his glory, for his purposes. We have a gracious God who works through small, foolish, even messed up and sinful people. He can work through people even at the end of their rope. And that's where Naomi will be at the end of these five verses. She lives in desolate days. She was brought along to Moab in a dubious decision. And now she'll be crushed by debilitating death. Call these verses three through five debilitating death. And you might say, well, isn't all death debilitating? That's redundant. But debilitating not for the, the deceased, but for her. This is, these are deaths that will cripple her. Verse three, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So things go from bad to worse to even worse. As quickly as he enters the narrative, Elimelech is gone. And notice here that the text refers to uh, Elimelech as Naomi's husband. And that's rare in scripture that it would refer to a husband as the wife's husband. Usually she is referred to as so-and-so's wife. But this is reversed because the focus is on Naomi. And right here we get an indication that this is her story. The book is called Ruth, but probably more than anything, this is actually Naomi's tale. 
And the text is going to focus on her and what happens with her. Because she's the one who's left with nothing here. Her husband dies, but you know, at least she still has two sons to take care of her. And then we read that they die as well. They've lived there for ten years. They took up Moabite wives named Orpah and Ruth. They were there for ten years and apparently no grandchildren. So where they went was not fertile either. They left barrenness and found barrenness. They tried to escape death and found death. And now Naomi is crushed and ruined, I'm sure, of course, emotionally. Maybe one of the... You guys have experienced this. Those of you who have felt the pain of death of those close to you. You know the the profound loss, the absence. Maybe what is most painful is the finality of it. There's no turning back from that, that they're not going to walk through the door the next day as much as you might want them to, or even be convinced that they are, but then they don't, and you're left and hurt again. There is an absence that never really goes away when someone close to you dies, and surely Naomi felt that. Her husband, her sons. And on top of that, she is practically left with nothing. She would not, by this age, have parents to go back to. She's in a foreign land, so she's not going to have property there. She doesn't seem to have a trade or a craft. Uh, That wouldn't have been usual to support herself. She doesn't have sons or grandkids to lean on to provide her a future. She's left with essentially nothing. And according to the custom, the order of the day, it was very likely that her daughters are just going to go back to Moab, to their families. That's what they should have done. So her future does not look bright at all. She's left really in a hopeless place. And we ask the question, does anything good remain for Naomi when she's lost everything? Is there still hope for her? And that's the question of the book of Ruth. Is there hope for the hopeless? Is there redemption for such people? That's a wonderful thing for us to meditate on because if you haven't been there before, you probably will be there at that place where things are feeling very bleak, that you've made a mess of your life. Maybe you've made a mess of your career. You've made a mess of your family. You've made decisions that have left your family in a place where you wish it wasn't. And maybe you hit 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, and each of those markers you think to yourself, this is not what I thought it would be. This was not the blueprint I had drawn up when I was in my younger years. And the days ahead don't look much brighter. And while you're in that place, you wonder, what's left? What am I to do with this? What can God do? And we read through Ruth and we find that even if we have nothing left, even if our decisions have been terrible, even if just providence and circumstance has been cruel to us, that God is still sovereign and still at work and still doing things that we don't see. 
because he cares for his people. We can be sure that because we know who he is as God, we know who he is as a father. He is the one that Psalm 113 says, he raises the poor from the dust, he lifts the needy from the ash heap, he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. That's the kind of God our God is. That's his character. He raises up those who are humble. He's not a God who just helps out those who are self-righteous and those who have made their own way and those who have made all the right decisions and are really proud of their own moral superiority and the wisdom that they've lived life with and the strong people. Those are God's people. No, no, no. God God is the one who is there for those who have ruined everything, who are left crippled and crying out to him, wondering what's next. And that person is the person that God is for. And he does things in a way we might not understand. As William Cooper wrote, God moves in a mysterious way. He does things that we don't see. He's at work in ways that we can't imagine. Uh, So we never would have written up that the greatest persecutor of the Christian church would become its greatest evangelist in Paul. Like that wouldn't have been our plan, but that was God's plan because he does things that we don't expect. And in the end, it is always for good. As commentator Ian DeGid wrote, grace is always God's last word. And that will be the last word of Ruth. Even when times seem bleak, and we know that, why? Because we're Christians. Christians ought to be and are a people of hope. A people who trust in God's redemption. A people who know that it will be good in the end. That should mark us out and identify us in a very particular way. Why? Because we are the people who saw our Savior die. We are the people who saw our Messiah come, the Savior of the world, the King of kings, our Lord, who who is there to minister to and save us all, and then we watched him die. And we are the people who lived through Holy Saturday at a time where all the world, all those who are looking to God are wondering, how could this be? Where are are you? This looks pretty hopeless. Our Savior is dead. Where is God in that dark providence? How could he allow that to happen? Is there anything left? We have lost our Savior. But then the Sunday came, and the resurrection happened, and Jesus was raised again to the right hand of God the Father, and now he lives and rules and reigns. So we have hope, because in the darkest day, God was at work, creating the greatest redemption. That's why we have hope, because we're people of the resurrection. And that resurrection has given us everything. And it has proved that God is the one who um, has made everything right. Our sins have been put to death. Our wrongs have been righted. The debt we owed has been paid. The death that threatens us, that we deserve, will not end us. And the world that is broken will be repaired because we worship a God of resurrection. So we Christians have hope in the darkest times. And you might wonder, well, what does Jesus and the resurrection have to do with Ruth? And we'll see by the end of the story how these things are connected, how it's all part of one story, telling us that our Redeemer lives. It was the same hope in that Redeemer that fueled Elizabeth Elliot. I'm sure many of you are familiar with her name. She was the wife of Jim Elliot, one of the five men who was killed by the Huarani tribe in Ecuador. Elizabeth Elliot lost her husband, killed by the very people they were trying to save, 
And she could have been crippled and without hope, but she knew her Lord and her Redeemer. So Elizabeth Elliot, several years after Jim Elliot was killed, returned to that tribe with one of the sisters of the other men. And they returned to that tribe and were able to make contact and were able to live among them for two years. And through her ministry, many of those people came to faith in Jesus Christ. And the tribe became known for its turn from violence to being a people of peace. Because we have a Redeemer who lives and gives hope to the hopeless. I think that's the message of Ruth, which we'll see over the next five weeks. Would you pray with me? Our Father and God, we thank you for uh, this book of Ruth. We thank you that you live and rule and reign, even through dark times, Lord, and what we might call dark providences, those times where we know you are sovereign, we know you're in control, but we can't figure out what in the world you're doing. And it seems hard and bleak. Lord, in those days, help us to trust in you. And I, I pray that Ruth would work to that end, that this would be a faith and trust-building exercise to read uh, your word and your plan for your people. Grow our faith, grow our trust, and help us to know you, our loving and redeeming Father. Work in us by your Spirit, we pray. Amen.